Good evening and welcome everyone. I want to express my gratitude to CIMC and Nico especially. It's so lovely to be joining you again. Um, I spent some time at your center there in Cambridge and um, just a lot of appreciation for all of the activities and the Dharma practice that you're doing together. So thank you so much for having me. As I said, I'm calling in from the mountains in Oregon, where generally I have no electricity and no Wi-Fi, but I'm sitting here in a van. So I'll show you. This is my office. And we figured it out. So it's parked in a meadow where we have access to a satellite. And with the magic of technology now, I have Wi-Fi, can connect with all of you. But if for some reason it's just a little unstable, just know it's because I'm in the wilderness and it will come back online. Starlink tends to be pretty reliable in general, and it's a nice sunny day here. So hopefully I'm coming through clear for you. Oh, so with that introduction, I'll begin my talk. And I'm just appreciating those of you who have your videos on. It's so helpful to be able to see you. And for those of you who are at home and, and have the ability to turn on your videos, I just like to be able to make that connection. <laughs> Thank you. So nice. Um, so I'll give a talk. It'll be 45, 50, 55 minutes. And then we'll have time for some discussion and, and question and response and um, yeah, wider conversation together. So as you heard, I want to share some thoughts on the Four Noble Truths this evening. And in particular, a, a take on this Dhamma Chaka Pawatana Sutta, the first teaching of the Buddha. Some of you might know that we're so early in our translation of these polytexts. If you think about biblical studies, for example, there's been generations of scholars and translators who have worked to make the Bible accessible and clear in so many different cultures. And then in comparison, the Pali suttas, of which there are thousands, we're only in our maybe second generation, second or third generation of translators who are bringing these, these texts to us in English. So that in itself is something to think about, right? We're still making sense out of what the Buddha might have taught. And Pali wasn't even his language. It's the, the language that's closest to what he spoke in his time. And so it's also all of these texts weren't written down for a couple centuries after, until after he died. So this is the closest we have so far. And I want to base my talk on the work of my teacher, Gil Franzdahl, who I find a very uh, innovative and creative translator with language, especially in these early works. So I'll say much more about this first teaching of the Buddha, the turning of the wheel of Dhamma, the Dhamma Chaka Pawatana Sutta, which is where we get this teaching on the Four Noble Truths. And many of you might be very familiar with the Four Noble Truths, but maybe this will be a little bit more practical and accessible interpretation 
of what the Buddha was, was pointing to. So first, a story. In the fall of 2013, I sat my first three-month retreat at the Insight Meditation Society. And during the second half of that retreat, a teacher on the part two team was named Damaruan. At that time, he was wearing white. He was practicing as an anagarika or a renunciate lay person. Damaruan is from Sri Lanka. And he has an interesting history that for some of us transcends what science knows. So Damaruan as a child, about three or four-year-old child, his parents noticed him chanting long suttas in a language that sounded like Sanskrit, but older. So soon it was discovered that he was chanting these suttas in Pali without knowing the language and in melodies that were ancient and weren't really known during that time in Sri Lanka. So what to make of this? This three-year-old child. And in fact, during the retreat, they played some recordings of this child chanting this sutta, which is here, I have it single-spaced, five or six pages long, doing it from memory, chanting. And so as he grew older and began studying the Dhamma, according to his account, he had these past life memories coming up. And so he said he remembered being a monk during the time of Buddhaghosa. And during that time, there was a big effort to memorize and chant all of the suttas to preserve them. So take that as you will. He was a very interesting person and a wonderful teacher, I, I thought. And because his specialty is chanting, he decided in the six weeks he was with us, we would learn this Dhamma Chaka Pawatana Sutta, which is known as the first turning of the wheel of the Dhamma. And the Buddha taught the Four Noble Truths. It's quite long. We would gather in the evenings, every evening, and chant and chant and chant. <laughs> and so because I love chanting and I love the language, I thought I would share just a little bit with you and uh, just asking for your understanding that chanting is not meant to be beautiful. <laughs> it's just meant to be practiced. And so I'll just chant a short bit. Um, the part of the sutta actually that talks about the, the eightfold noble path. So here we go. Katama chasabi kawe majima patipara tatagatena abisambura chakku karani nyana karani upasamaya abhinaya samboraya nibanaya Sangwatati Samaditi Sama Sankapo Samawacha Sama Kamanto Sama Ajiwo Sama Wayamo Sama Sati Sama Samadi 
So it goes on and on. And if you're interested in hearing Damaruan chant, it's really actually quite beautiful the way he does it. He has his recordings on Dharma Seed. You can look those up. So every evening chanting the sutta that's very repetitive and has so many of the key aspects of the Dhamma that we know today. So I want to share the story of this sutta, many of you will know, but just so you get a feel for the context and the times where this teaching came from. So we know that this famous story on the night of his awakening, he had been a wandering ascetic for six years. Uh, he was about 35 and he decided he sat down under and just that part of the story itself is worth pause. He took refuge in nature. He found protection and safety at the roots of a beautiful Bodhi tree. It said actually that we have a cutting of the original Bodhi tree at IMS. <laughs> you can see it on campus. The Buddha sat under a tree and he was pretty determined at that point. He knew he was close to enlightenment. And so then the story goes that as evening fell, the demon Mara came to visit. And of course, you can take this in a literal or a metaphorical way, this demon presence, Mara. He represents all of the obstacles on the path. And some of us, we might be familiar with these hindrances and obstacles. So Mara threw up all, all these obstacles. First, he sent his daughters to seduce the Buddha, to draw him off his seat. And yet the great being was unmoved. And then Mara sent armies of ferocious demons and warriors with bows and arrows and spears to frighten the Buddha off his seat. And yet it's said that the Buddha's samadhi, his concentration was so strong and his metta, his kindness, that these arrows, as they flew towards him, turned into lotus flowers at his feet. And then Mara was very persistent. His last obstacle and strongest was the hindrance of doubt. So this ferocious demon Mara confronts the Buddha and he says, who are you to claim this seat? That's not your seat. You don't have the right to full awakening. That's my seat, actually. You need to leave. And again, this is such a beautiful gesture. We see in many of the statues, the earth-touching mudra, where the Buddha touched the earth. He reached down and he said, with the earth as my witness, this is my seat, and I will awaken right here this time in this place. And then of course it's said that the earth shook, affirming his claim. And it was at that moment that he gained full enlightenment. All the fetters in his mind fell away and he was free. But I think we can learn so much just about how to deal with doubt. We know the Buddha himself had that kind of doubt, don't we? And the confidence that he had to know, I can claim the earth as my witness here. That in itself, I think, is a powerful teaching for us. 
But so anyway, the story goes on that he was so bedazzled by what he had seen and his newfound freedom that he stayed for several weeks in the forest, just contemplating the state of his mind and the experience of having a mind that was free of sorrow and grief and lamentation. And he was also sitting and wondering, you know, I don't know if I can teach this. You know, what I've seen is so profound, so peaceful, so noble, that I just don't know how it would be able to explain it to other people. And then again, it said in the mystical sense, there was a beautiful celestial being, a deva, who came down from the heavens and beseeched the Buddha to teach what he knew. And it said, this deva said, you know, there are few beings like us who have just a little dust in their eye, who will be able to understand what you have understood. And so for the compassion, the welfare of all beings, please go out and teach. And the Buddha considers this and he knows the deva's right. And he says, okay, for the compassion and the welfare of all, I will go out and teach what I know. So he's on foot and he travels from the forest where he is to the town, the nearest town named Varanasi. And there he found five of his old friends who were ascetics practicing in Deer Park. And even now, still in India, you can go to Deer Park. There are deer there. <laughs> the big, beautiful stupa where the Buddha is said to have given this Dhammachaka Sutta, the first turning of the wheel. This is what he chose to teach his very first teaching to his five friends. And he knew they were close. So this is worth note, you know, in all of the Dhamma, all of the, all that he had understood and seen, this is what he chose to share. So what is this first turning of the wheel? It's called the Arya Satcha. So Arya is noble. Satcha is truth. So we know these as the four noble truths. So what is the truth about reality? It's kind of a big question, isn't it? And so many faith traditions all over the world, not including science, this is all what we're trying to figure out. What is really going on here? But here we have the Buddha pointing to it pretty, pretty like plain as day. You know, Gil Fronstall says it's hidden in plain sight that we're all trying to figure out the truth about reality. But here is what the Buddha pointed to. He said, these four are true. So sometimes they sound cliche and some of us might know, have heard so much about them. I want to offer a metaphor. I think this is illustrative of what these four are offering to us. It's as if we have a broken leg. And we go in to see the doctor and first the doctor takes x-rays. He might put us in the um, MRI machine. He does all kinds of tests and things to find out what's really going on. And so then he gives us a diagnosis. He says, well, it looks like your leg is broken. And the good news is that this bone can heal, right? So the prognosis is good. It's hopeful possibility to recover from this broken leg. And then he gives us a whole system of treatment, right? So we might have to get a cast and we might do a lot of physical therapy and take different medicines, but he offers us the way to heal 
this broken leg. And this is exactly the formula for the Four Noble Truths. So the Buddha is the doctor and he's giving us the diagnosis, the first noble truth of suffering. Then he's giving us the cause, right? The, the reason why we're suffering. He's giving us a, a prognosis. It's hopeful. You can, you can heal. You can overcome this. And he's giving us the path, the fourth noble truth, which is the eightfold path, but really the way, the way to realize uh, your complete healing from the malady you're suffering from, which is dukkha. So the first noble truth, the dukkha arya sachang, there is dukkha. And the Buddha says this one is to be understood. And so all of the glossy magazines now that are like, be mindful, it'll bring everything peaceful for you, right? <laughs> Practice meditation, you'll be healthy. I think a lot of the mainstream secular mindfulness movement kind of forgot that we have to understand suffering, <laughs> that we're not bypassing suffering with our mindfulness, that we really have to feel it. And have you noticed that so far in your practice? As much as we might want to overcome and bypass and transcend the very real dukkha of the world, this is a path that invites us into right relationship with it. So just a little bit about the etymology of dukkha, this word. You might have heard this before, but so often we just hear dukkha means suffering. But it's one of those poly words that has a lot more translations, many more meanings to it. And the literal translation, do and ka, do just means the center of a wheel and ka means the periphery. And so dukkha is actually pointing to a wheel that's out of alignment. It, the hub is off balance. And you can imagine what that ride is like with the wheel that's out of alignment. Dukkha is a bumpy ride. And so that's basically what this Buddha is saying. He's not saying that life is all suffering. It's all difficulty and pain. No, he's just saying it's just a little bumpy. And isn't it? It's unreliable. This loose wheel doesn't fit very well. It's out of alignment. We can't rely on it. We can't really control it. And we're in for a bumpy ride. So I'll tell you a story um, about one of my biggest encounters with dukkha as a young person. This was maybe 20, 25 years ago. It was right about the time that I started on this path. And like so many of us, it was because I was in deep suffering. So in high school, given my particular social location and conditioning, I was taught to succeed. I was taught to be an overachiever. I was very busy. I earned good grades in high school. I was on the crew team. I was doing all kinds of extracurriculars. And in fact, I received a scholarship for rowing, which is why I attended the college I did here in Oregon. So my freshman year of college, I was on the lightweight rowing team, which meant that all eight of us had a particular weight that we needed to make in order to row on the team. 
because of my conditioning, I was very conscientious. I was really trying hard to be a perfect person. And so I was trying hard in school and a lot of my anxiety and, and attempt to be perfect was channeled through insecurity around my body, body image, so much pressure. Now, I think even nowadays it's worse for folks who identify as female, maybe everyone. Um, but in particular, being on the lightweight rowing team, we got weighed publicly every weekend before our races. And I was so conscientious. I was going to the gym every day and weighing myself and making sure that I was well below the cutoff. But the best rower on our team, I remember she was stroke. So she was seat one, really good rower, Sonia. She was always a little bit overweight, like tiny bit, you know, 0 0.1, 0 0.2 pounds. And so every weekend we would all go in solidarity. We would get weighed together and inevitably Sonia would be just a tiny bit over the mark. And so she would put on layers of sweat, sweatpants and she would go, go on the bicycle and try to sweat off that extra pound or percentage of a pound. And in solidarity, often many of us would join her just cycling and cycling. And then we would try again. Sometimes she'd be under, sometimes not. And I remember a particularly stressful regatta. It was a big race. It was an important one. We were a good team that year, so we wanted to do well. And just inevitably, Sonia was just like point two over as usual, tried to sweat it off on the exercise bike. And then the morning of the race, got on the scale, was again like 0 0.05 or some margin over the, the mark. And so I remember her, she had long hair. I remember the moment of her holding her hair back and giving the scissors to the coach while the coach cut her hair down to her scalp so that she could make weight. And I don't even think it worked. I think it wasn't enough. And so as a young person that year, I remember wrestling with a lot of dukkha. And when I read about these truths, there was something that was such a relief about hearing the first one was about suffering. Here's the path that's offering a way out, but not denying the friction, the unreliability, the kind of anxiety that I was in. And there's something in me, you know, 20 years old, that really got that, that felt so right about that, such common sense. I remember that summer, in between my freshman and sophomore years, I was still, you know, rowing and working hard to stay at my particular size. And I remember getting on the treadmill at the gym day after day after day. And I looked down the row and I could see all these other women, different ages. They all had their shape magazines, you know, and I could feel the mental activity of like calorie counting and, you know, making sure they were doing it right. And so, so focused on this image, this, this particular culture that I was in. And I felt like I could see my life stretching out ahead of me. I could be this way, 40 years old, 50 years old, 60 years old on the same treadmill with the same magazine. I saw that. And it was a moment of insight, really. I thought, okay, I, I could be like, like, like this. 
This could be my whole life. But there must be another way. It's like a little crack of space where I thought maybe I can decide to do it differently. And even in that moment, I thought, I'm going to try to do it differently. (laughs) I don't think I want to spend my life on this treadmill. And I really think dukkha is the metaphorical treadmill, the metaphorical hamster wheel that we're all on and that the Buddha was pointing to. So he has us consider that birth is dukkha and illness is dukkha, aging is dukkha, having this body that's unreliable and uncontrollable. I mean, if you really look at it, isn't it true? Aging is not for the faint of heart. And if we're lucky, we get to feel this body age, but it's all kind of downhill from here, right? Because we experience aging and then illness, maybe, but inevitably this body's going to die. So not such great news and so obvious, but also a truth that our culture is often, dominant culture is often trying to deny, right? At least show the world that somehow you're over, you're beyond aging with all of the products and all of the capitalism, all the consumerism, we're invited to disguise the fact of being in a human body that's aging and getting sick and eventually going to die. So the Buddha didn't shy from this. He said, this is all dukkha. He said, separation from the loved is dukkha. Not to get what one wants is dukkha. In short, he said, the five aggregates of clinging are dukkha. And the five aggregates is a whole other talk, but it's just one way of categorizing our experience. Body, feeling, emotions, thoughts, consciousness, all of this is what we cling to as me and mine. These are all unreliable. They're all dukkha. So this is the invitation for practice that he offers to us, is to just be aware of this experience throughout the day. When are we face-to-face with this kind of unreliability? Is it in relationship to our body and our health? Is it in relationship to our minds, our mercurial, quizzical, uncontrollable minds? (laughs) And I'm sure, I mean, some of us who just sat for 45 minutes, anytime we meditate, we see that they can't be corralled. (laughs) Often the mind is like this wild horse and just takes all we can, all we can muster to be with it. So humbling. And so we have the distractible mind, the mind that has anxiety, that's overwhelmed with to-do lists, relational suffering, all the complexities of being human with other humans. We have these personal kinds of suffering. And nowadays, I mean, isn't it true? We see so much collective suffering, the sufferings of injustice and oppression, of war and violence of climate. I mean, living up here in the wilderness, I've been here for almost a year and a half and the trees are dying here in Oregon. It's very real. This is the truth of dukkha. And so we have to feel all of this. We're not negating it, but we're also moving into the second noble truth. So having felt all of this, digested it, 
really understood it deeply. The second noble truth is often taught as the cause or the origin of suffering. And here's where the new take comes in. Because Gil, he's translating this phrase, samudaya. So it says, dukkha arya sachang samudaya. What is the second noble truth? Samudaya is often cause or origin. But Gil says, more accurately, samudaya means arising. And this might not seem like such a huge difference, but if we take it to practice, I find it much more accessible to consider the arising of dukkha rather than taking it to some metaphysical origin of this kind of suffering or stress. Can we simply just notice when stress is arising in our minds? When is there stress? When is there not? How does it arise and how does it cease? And in some ways, this formula of dukkha, it's arising, it's cessation in the path is also more in alignment with the, Duke, with the Buddha's teaching on impermanence, right? He's always pointing to noticing the arising and the ceasing of everything again and again and again, moment by moment. And it's the insight into impermanence that often frees the mind. So I'm really loving in my own practice, interpreting this second noble truth as simply seeing the arising of stress. When does it come and when does it go and how? So that way the mind is growing in its wisdom, understanding the conditions that lead to this bumpy ride and then understanding conditions that lead to perhaps the ending of the bumpy ride or at least a smoother way. So that's the practice instruction for us in daily life. Just notice when suffering arises and what are the conditions that are there. And we might create our own list, our own definition for these conditions that cause suffering to arise. The Buddha offered his own. So I'll just go through these three briefly because I think they're useful for our reflection. How does suffering arise? It arises with sensory craving. The word tanha in Pali is translated as craving. So craving or thirst, sensory craving, craving for existence and craving for non-existence. So these also can feel kind of metaphysical, but I'll try to bring them back down to earth. So he said, the causes or the arising of suffering occurs when we get enchanted with sensory experience. He's not saying we're not supposed to feel pleasure. He's just pointing to our relationship to pleasure. Right? So a little story here. <laughs> Living in retreat, as I've done, um, in simplicity, it's really interesting to watch the mind and what it grasps onto in terms of the senses. <laughs> So mostly it's very pleasant up here. I'm living in the woods. I live in a small one-room cabin uh, with only wood heat and water that's piped in from the creek. So it's all cold water. And it's pretty cozy. Uh, the wood fire is nice. There's a lot of chopping wood and carrying back and forth and such. Um, but the one thing about the cabin is that mostly it's warm, except that the, the floors are very drafty. So there's always cold air <laughs> coming up from the wood floors. 
And it's just interesting to watch my mind. Like first thing in the morning, I'm putting on all my socks and I have layers of socks that I'm putting on and slippers and fantasizing about nice slippers all year. And I did bring warm socks, but it, it's been some months. And so in all of these cold winters, a couple of them up here now, I've worn through my warm socks. And so when my partner and I came out sort of officially from our seclusion about a month ago, the first thing I did, one of the first things was to go online and buy new socks. <laughs> and it was so funny to, to watch the mind be like, oh, I'm going to be happy now. I just need to get these new socks and it will be good. <laughs> and even at the same time as I knew that was really a falsehood, there was something in me that was just waiting for that package to get warm socks and my feet would be warm and then kind of thinking that would solve the whole problem. Not taking into account the fact that these socks will also wear out. <laughs> right? That warm feet is not the end of suffering. But this is what the Buddha is pointing to, the kind of delusion that we think if I just get that next shiny object, whatever it is, the beautiful sunrise or the conversation with a friend or even bigger, like the nice new big house or the perfect job, we, if we fixate on these sense experiences and we often live our life just going from one pleasant experience to another. Have you noticed the mind doing that? And it's unrelenting. I mean, especially in retreat here, we are supposed to be a renunciate, but I'm like going for the, like whatever pleasant experience I can eke out in my renunciate lifestyle. <laughs> so humbling. So not to deny ourselves pleasure, but to change our relationship, to know that these pleasures are passing, they're impermanent. They won't actually deliver lasting satisfaction so we can enjoy them in their impermanence and then let them go right that beautiful william blake poem that i'm not going to remember off the top of my head but it's something about delighting in the sunrise and then letting it go right as a bird flies something like this <laughs> hmm. so that's sensory craving the second one craving for existence this is a really big one it's becoming right? Isn't, I mean, so much of the narrative I was in, in high school and college was the narrative dominant culture that you just have to figure it out and you'll, you're responsible for your own happiness, right? So it's up to you, up to you to find the right partner, to find the best major, to then find the good job, to then be self-sustaining and have a nice house and a nice car, right? Support myself. And that's the formula for happiness, isn't it? Western culture gives that to us. And if we look closely, this narrative is so cruel. It assumes we all start from the same place. And then we're completely responsible for our own success and failure without taking into account any of the cultural messaging or accessibility. We live in a caste system where some people have access to those resources and other people don't. So very cruel for everyone involved. And for me, I had a lot of privilege, but even so, being so responsible for my own happiness felt like a setup for failure. Even though I was checking all the boxes, my mind was like, there's something wrong with me because I'm not happy. So this story is based on all this delusion that it's up to us, right? The American dream that all of this will deliver. We just have to become this perfect person and that's the solution. 
So again, as a young person, there was something so relieving about hearing this, this story. Oh yeah, of course, the grass is always greener. Of course, there's all these other outside conditions that are beyond my control. And even if I do get it all right, it's all about to change. It's all changing moment by moment. I can't grasp it, right? Like the sand in the hourglass. So believing in this reality, believing in our story, that's out of alignment, right? It's like the wheel that's a bad fit. And if we're believing these cultural narratives and all of the pressures we have to become a particular way, it's a recipe for suffering. The psychologist Bruce Tiffs calls this fundamental aggression towards reality because we're living out of alignment with the truth. That's such a relief when we start to see this. These characteristics of impermanence and unreliability and not self. Not a lot of practice. One way to frame practice is just coming into alignment more and more with these truths. We're setting our wheel back on track. And then the third arising of suffering is craving for non-existence. So we've all seen this and just, don't we just want to go to sleep? Like it's all so much. And especially in these times, I'd say since pandemic, there's just so much for this system to handle. I teach retreats and I just see more and more anxiety and trauma. So much people are carrying dysregulation. We're all carrying this. So of course we want to binge watch Netflix, right? And it's hard to get out of bed and we're trying to find all of our distractions, all of our ways to just shut this off because it is so much to hold. So this is also very human. And in naming these three, the Buddha wasn't shaming us. He didn't say there's a problem with craving sensory pleasures or wanting to become somebody or wanting to disappear because these are the truths. He was saying, this is what is the human condition. It's just like you have a broken leg, but your bone can be fixed. (laughs) It's good news. Just a broken leg. And don't we want to heal that broken leg? So moving on to the third noble truth is good news. But I think to really take note of this teaching of arising and passing, right? That we can bring these truths really practically into our lives. It doesn't even have to be formal practice to notice when is stress or dukkha arising. And then thirdly, what are the conditions for dukkha to cease? What are the conditions for dukkha to cease? And you might just consider this. I have a poem I want to read. And as I read it, you might think about How is it for you, your particular mind, heart? What brings about an easing of your very real suffering for you? So this poem is called At the Tea House, 6 a.m. It's by Holly J. Hughes. Sunrise at the octagonal hut, beyond where two decks meet, a lizard does push-ups in the sun. I see the green chattering world through the window. I see my image in the window. 
both are present, are both true? A bee enters the hut, buzzes insistently against the window, but the window won't yield to his wishes. I want to show him the open door. Say, this world through the glass is only an illusion. But I don't. How long will he hurl himself against the dusty glass? How long will we believe we're not free? I think this is pointing to the way that we keep trying and trying with the second noble truth. Find our satisfaction in these cravings. And yet there's this open door. So the cessation of dukkha The great Thai forest master Ajahn Buddhadasa called this Tadanga Nibuto. And he's pointing to these little moments throughout the day where suffering does really cease. We have these little cessations. And he would say, he said, Thank God we have these because if we didn't have these little breaks, we would go crazy with the dukkha. So can you watch for them? Little moments of pause or peace or exhale in your practice throughout the day, in Sangha. And you probably are having more of these than you know. Because so often we hear about the big cessations and we're going for these big meditation experiences and our own awakening is held far off in the future. Okay, it's nice to hear about, but it's not gonna happen for me for a while. But with this third noble truth, the Buddha is saying it's actually really possible right here on your seat at this time, at this place. It's like placing your hand on the earth because you have everything that you need to be free of dukkha. And as I said, this often begins with seeing the truth of impermanence. The Buddha so often in his suttas was saying, you just notice the arising and the passing. One possesses this wisdom that understands impermanence, the arising and disappearance, which is noble and penetrating and leads to the destruction of suffering. When the mind sees that it's holding tightly to the moving rope and it begins to let go, right? We're not getting rope burn anymore. So impermanence. And in this moment at Deer Park, as he was teaching this first novel or the first turning of the wheel to his five friends, at the end of the sutta, it kind of tells the story, right? He's going through these truths and he's saying how he understood them and he realized them. The third noble truth is to be realized. He's talking about impermanence. And then at the very end, it's proclaimed that one of the ascetics, one of his friends named Kondanya, Kondanya understands. And so at that moment, his mind releases. And it's so beautiful in the text because it's exclaiming, it's an exclamation, Kondanya understands. And that's kind of how we feel when we have a breakthrough or an insight, big or little. I mean, wow. <laughs> you know, we want to proclaim, oh my goodness, we see the world in a different way. Wow, I'm free of whatever was enchanting me, whatever was um, possessing me, that dukkha ceases and 
it's like some blessing descends and often it doesn't feel like we made it happen. The mind just finds a deeper kind of peace. It finds its way there. And it's such a beautiful message of hope the, the Buddha gave. He said, you're, you're able to do it. That's why I teach. So often this insight into impermanence has other experiences with it. And I just want to name some of these words in Pali because here again, we're going to offer a new interpretation. So for some of you Dharma nerds, you might've heard this progression that we see impermanence. The mind has viraga, which is the, the traditional translation is dispassion. Nibbida, disenchantment. Niroda, cessation, and letting go, patinisago. So he gives this progression very, very often in the suttas. He says, impermanence, anicca, and then viraga, nibbida, niroda, patinisago. <laughs> when the mind sees impermanence, it lets go of its passion, right? Again, a kind of archaic translation, I'm going to offer a new one. But it becomes dispassionate, disenchanted. It sees cessation the third noble truth. And then it naturally lets go because it's like, whew, don't want to hold on to that hot pan anymore. So that's kind of the progression the Buddha names often in this freedom. But when we hear these words, dispassion, disenchantment, cessation, do they feel a little like dusty and old? Like, wait, what? I don't really actually know what this word dispassion means. Is it saying we're supposed to be dis, dis, like detached disenchanted by the world, but the world is also quite beautiful. So Gil offers these different translations, which I think are very helpful. He says, Viraga is simply peace. Nibbida is independence. Niroda is freedom. So peace, independence, and freedom we all have experienced this, haven't we? Those words to me point more directly to the experience of it, which we have all the time. Again, in little and big ways. So he's just pointing to the way we're holding on so tightly and then the mind finds its way to ease and peace and freedom. And it's been interesting for me, just after this long period of seclusion, I've begun to understand these words differently because I'm kind of a greedy type. You might notice, like I like sensory pleasure. <laughs> I like people. I like the world. I mean, nature's beauty, very enchanting. And so always this kind of detached, like cold kind of remove from the world that often I find in the suttas. To me, it's not really pointing to this right relationship with pleasure. I can still really enjoy those socks <sighs> when I understand they're not leading to full freedom. I can enjoy them even more. Like Ajahn Chah pointing to his beautiful teacup and saying it's already broken. This body is already old and aging. And can we love it even more because it's fleeting? I think these words are pointing to a falling back in love with the world without demanding the lasting satisfaction that it can never deliver. 
So we find deep peace and independence and freedom right here in the middle of the sensory experience that's so rich and so profound and also so fleeting and light, ephemeral. So just to bring it back to a very visceral experience, I'm gonna ask each of you if you're in a place where you can, if you just hold a fist like this, and good. You can just clench it and clench your hand tight and, you know, notice, feel it, feel the tension in the hand. You might feel heat. The squeeze of it. This is really what the Buddha is talking to in terms of tanha, this thirst or craving, clinging. We do this, the mind does it, sticky. We squeeze really hard. Okay. So then as you're ready, you can... Start to release the muscles in your hand and be very mindful as you notice. Okay, so it <laughs> might be pretty stiff to open it first. It's slow. It goes in phases. But can we just feel now what is a sensation in an open palm? Different temperature, a different kind of ease. We didn't have to get rid of the hand. We're just feeling it differently. So we notice the qualities that are present when craving is absent. What are the qualities that are present here when clinging and craving have ceased? And the Buddha said, many of these qualities are here. Beauty and love, compassion, clarity, Samadhi, bliss, all that's here. My Tibetan teacher, Mingyur Rinpoche, he says, to bring an end to suffering, we need to cut through dualistic habits of perception and the illusions that hold them in place, not by fighting or suppressing them, but by embracing and exploring them. So we're not fighting or suppressing the world. Embracing and exploring this very human experience. Okay. So the path, the fourth noble truth, the Buddha said this one is to be realized. That we can walk the path to its end. And so another story. This is from the suttas. It's called The City from the Samyutta Nikaya. So there's a story about a, a villager living in a town that's kind of run down. It's kind of broken and battered. And the, all the villagers there, they don't really know any, any different. It's just what they've known, this village. It's kind of barren. And there's a particular woodsman who I like to think of. I mean, it could have been a wood, woodswoman or a non-binary kind of person who works in the woods. <laughs> and so this person is going out and working in the woods and tending to the forest, stewarding the forest. And one day they come upon an ancient path. It's a path that's all grown over with moss and overgrowth and bushes and trees fallen down. And slowly, slowly they cut away the undergrowth. They keep walking the path and it's long. But finally, this person, this woods person comes to the end and they realize They've come upon a huge city. It's an ancient city. 
and while it's ancient and and maybe a little in in shambles it can be re-inhabited and it's much grander and more beautiful than the town this villager has been living in and so they run back and they run back and they say oh my goodness villagers everybody come look come see there's this ancient city and we can live there it's so beautiful this huge discovery and of course, the story goes that all of the royalty and townspeople, all of the families walk that path and they become, um, they find their new home in this, they inhabit the ancient city. And of course, the metaphor is that the wits person was the Buddha who found an ancient path, had been trod, trodden by people before. The city is Nibbana, enlightenment, and we are the villagers. We don't even know we're living in a barren town. <laughs> but he's showing us this possibility of something new. And the Eightfold Path is simply the way we get there. So we can inhabit our rightful place in this beautiful city. Such good news. There's possibility of this. And this path that I just chanted, this is the way. So you might've heard samaditi, samasankapo. And this word sama, again, here's a new translation. Often we hear right view or wise view. But Gil offers the word sama means complete. Another understanding of this. So just listen and see how this lands if I name it, complete view complete intention, complete speech, complete action, complete livelihood, complete effort, complete mindfulness, and complete samadhi or focus. It's kind of different, huh? I like it. It's a kind of wholehearted interpretation. And it's pointing to the way that I think often we're pretty splintered. You know, we can feel divided in our identities, in our pursuits, overwhelmed, so many things going on, and we're different people all over the place. But what if this path was a kind of inclusion? What if it was a gathering back into our natural wholeness? That we're coming into a kind of completion in ourselves. It's so satisfying, right? Coherence is again that coming into alignment with ourselves, with others. And in many of the texts, this eightfold path, we do it maybe even without knowing. And it's kind of, it's the result. This completion results on its own. As we're practicing wholeheartedly, this is the both the way and also the blessing and the fruition of practice. So I don't think we have to think too hard about this. That one way to frame this whole Eightfold Path is really a lot of it is just about wise effort. It's about knowing what leads to healthy mind states and what leads to unhealthy ones. And then cultivating the wholesome ones, the healthy ones, the beneficial ones. That often people would come to the Buddha and ask, how did you do it? How did you cross this flood? flood of existence and he said it was by not halting and not straining 
that I crossed the flood. He's pointing to wise effort. We don't try too hard, but we don't give up either. So my last little analogy, and then we'll summarize. Uh, because I work in this van with my partner, the other Nico, it's a pretty tight space in here together. And especially coming out of silence and being more engaged in the world, I realized I have this habit of opening up my email on the computer and just pounding away the keyboard. It's like somehow all of my anxiety about email is channeled through my typing very loud. And as we started to work together, Nico was like, you think you could just like type a little more gentle? <laughs> Do you have to pound? <laughs> and it was such an insight. When I started to do, go a little slower, I'm really a fast typer. When I started to slow down and like be gentle with the keys by not halting and not straining, so much more easeful. And actually my communication and emailing is turning out easier by just noticing the amount of effort. So I think that's how we understand this path. It's by halting and not straining and finding our very own personal effort that feels like it's sustainable, it's light, it's workable. Effortless effort. And so what do we find when we come to the city? This phrase, yata bhuta jnana dasana, which we find in this sutta, it's how things have come to be, how things are coming to be. And it's pointing to this experience of conditions arising and falling away and arising and falling away. And when the mind really sees that deeply, it learns how to release. So this is uh, the really wonderful French monk, Mathieu Ricard, who is a monk in the uh, Vajrayana tradition. This is what he says. He says, this is the way enlightened beings relate to everything. Their world is made of rainbows. Everything briefly appears, then gradually or suddenly disappears. Imagine how your relationship to the world would change if you realized it's all made of rainbows. You're sitting on a rainbow. You're holding a rainbow in your hands. You go to sleep on a rainbow bed and cover yourself with a rainbow blanket. You eat and drink rainbows. You put rainbow clothes on a rainbow body and you make love to a rainbow mate. When your rainbow house disappears, it's no big deal. That's just what rainbows do. So this is the view, knowing things how they've come to be and learning how to be at peace with this arising and ceasing. And trusting that the mind naturally will learn how to release its craving when it sees this deep truth. And knowing this is the way to true freedom. So my friends, let's just sit for a breath or two. There's a lot of words I know, so. Just let them settle and be very simple here for a moment.
Thank you so much for your kind attention. I'm really enjoying just seeing your facial expressions and feeling like we're in the Dhamma field together here. Um, okay, my friends, I'm seeing it's time to end. Should we dedicate the merit, Nico, or do you have a closing? Okay, great. All right. So we can thank all of our time together here spent contemplating the Dhamma, sharing together, practicing sincerely, all the goodness that's generated through this practice, our complete mindfulness, our complete effort, our complete kindness and generosity. May we offer this goodness, feeling full of it in our bodies and then offering it freely to all beings everywhere to a world that is in so uh, deep need of these qualities of wisdom and compassion and clarity. May we keep learning how to wake up together. May we learn our mutual belonging here in the family of things. And may all beings find their way to peace and freedom. May it be so. Just deep gratitude to all of you. Yeah, thank you for your practice, your sangha, your companionship on the path. Look forward to meeting you again along the way. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.